what am I doing in my life? What am I doing? Am I out to build a kingdom of one? Do I spend my time on what is convenient and comfortable and goes my way? And I'm, I'm determined to kind of build and cling to and manufacture and hold on to a kingdom of self. What am I doing in my life? Or do I recognize that Jesus is king? The one we just sang to whose victory is his. Do, do, I, do I go about my life recognizing that Jesus is king and therefore recognizing the very real reality that the kingdom is here? The kingdom of God is at hand and unfolding and will come to full fruition when he returns. Amen? So what am I doing in my life? Questions for you. You might not want to answer this out loud. Do you use profanity? <laughs> now, I, said, do you, I asked, do you use profanity? And you know, if, if there's a couple of ways we could respond, right? We could go... Hmm. That's one way. <laughs> we, could, we could go, no, I don't say four-letter words out loud very often to anyone. So I'm good. I must be good then. Or perhaps another way we could answer that question is, yes. Yes, I use profanity. I say words I shouldn't say once in a while. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you this morning, that either answer or any other answer, perhaps we're, we're defining the word profanity too narrowly. Whether we answer yes or no, do you use, do you use profanity? Maybe we're defining that too narrowly. Maybe, maybe God has to broaden our perceptions, our understandings a little bit this morning. Here's another question for you. Have you broken the sixth commandment? Now, most of you go, oh, well, boy, I better first know what the sixth commandment is. Here it is. The sixth commandment is do not murder. So I ask this morning, have you broken the sixth commandment? And sixth commitment? Sixth commandment. And, and maybe you say, no, not, not at first glance, No. And then again, I suggest as we continue this morning, is God going to expand our definitions? Uh, or what if we were to discover this morning that even if at first glance this is not a problem for us, what if we were to discover as we seek God's heart this morning that we violate the heart of this commandment all the time? Grab your Bible and open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Love you to bring your physical Bible with you. If not that, a device that you carry that has a Bible app and find your way to Matthew uh, chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four books at the beginning of the New Testament portion of your Bible. The New Testament is the back, the later half of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the stories of Jesus' life. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Want you to turn there. Want you to be able to look at the scriptures. Want you to as we sometimes say, keep your finger in the text because we want to hear from God directly through his word. So as we do this, we're in a series of messages we've called Kingdom Life, where we are teaching our way through this, what's called, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
teachings of Jesus that have profound impact not only 2,000 years ago, but absolutely in our lives today in 2022. So um, our series, Kingdom Life, is teaching our way through Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, certainly as we open God's word, we need his help. So let me pray. Father, Father, we lift our eyes to you this morning. We gather because we need you. We gather because life is hard. What you've called us to is, is, is difficult. We want to live for you. We want to learn to live out the ways of Jesus. We want to be conduits of your love to our spheres of influence. We want to be proclaimers of the great news of Jesus. But we're tired. And life has its ups and downs. And so we gather to point one another to you, to regain energy and strength and be reminded of your goodness to us. So there is much that would go against our time in the word this morning. There is distraction. There is the work of the evil one. There could be many things that would try to to take us away from hearing from you, from your word this morning. And Father God, we pray that Jesus has victory. And so we're thankful for this opportunity to hear from you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get to today's passage in Matthew 5, very quickly, I want to set the stage where we're at, where we've been in this series. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, by way of review, very quickly, Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, to get rid of the Old Testament scriptures. Instead, Jesus says, I have not come to destroy them, abolish them, but to fulfill them. This, this, we talked about this last Sunday, but just be reminded that the New Testament teachings of Jesus do sort of supersede the Old Testament. But don't, notice what I didn't say. It doesn't destroy the Old Testament teachings. It doesn't get rid of the Old Testament teachings. It doesn't contradict the Old Testament teachings. Jesus' teaching in the New Testament kind of takes God's teaching in the Old Testament and, and fulfills and rounds it out, and gives it depth, and adds to its meaning. Jesus' teaching in the New Testament completes God's teaching from the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying there. And then if you skip to verse 20, also reminding us of where we've been last Sunday, verse 20, Jesus still speaking, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We said last week that the original listeners to Jesus in this passage would have been shocked because the scribes and the Pharisees were professional believers in God. They, were, they put all their time into obeying the law. They, were, they seemed impressive in their ability to be righteous. But what was often the case was that the scribes and the Pharisees appeared clean on the outside. They worked hard at religious appearances, but the heart was muddy. The heart was sinful. And God wants to get to the heart. Uh, God wants more for us than maintaining religious appearances. He, He wants us to come to him, to come to his word, to be changed, uh, such that our hearts 
that our inside would be clean, not just our external appearances. So let's see in our passage today uh, what heart change God is after. So here's our verses for today, Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. I'll read through 26. Follow along with me if you would. Jesus still speaking his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus continues, verse 22. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." So what is before us today as we take a closer look at the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us from his word, what is before us today? Building up a kingdom of one, living entirely in our thoughts and actions for a kingdom of self, or learning to live as citizens of God's kingdom, to live out the ways of Jesus, to live out God's best for us. What's before us today? To tear down those around us or to build up and encourage and strengthen people around us? What's before us today? To destroy relationships or to maintain and build and bring reconciliation to broken relationships? So back to verse 21. You have heard it said, Jesus says, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Of course, so Jesus here is referring, as we already talked about a few minutes ago, Jesus is referring to the sixth commandment in the Old Testament, you shall not murder. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And you also know that the Old Testament teaches that those who murder will be liable to judgment. The the sixth commandment is specific to premeditated, deliberate killing. That's why it's transferred, uh, translated as murder here. You shall not murder. And, and the judgment, the consequences for murderers in the Old Testament were significant. Why? Because the Old Testament was clear repeatedly that the prohibition against murder, that this commandment against murder was based in something really important. The fact that all human beings are made by God in the image of God. The prohibition against murder, against taking life, is because of human life being, being, having natural, God-given dignity. 
Humans made by God, created by God, in the image of God, loved by God, intrinsic dignity, value, worth. Does that make sense? So that's the foundation of the prohibition against murder. So that's what the Old Testament taught. So Jesus brings up, here's what you know. Here's what's been taught to you. And then Jesus continues because he has more to say because he wants to go beyond the prohibition of murder in the, old, in the sixth commandment, and he wants to get us to the heart. He wants to get to his heart. He wants us to hear his heart for how we treat people, and he wants to get to our hearts so that this will be clean, not just our external behavior. So Jesus continues in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus doesn't just stop at teaching the Old Testament's sixth commandment. Jesus continues into the intent behind the sixth commandment. Jesus continues to draw our attention, by the way, in pretty serious, dramatic fashion, I would say. Jesus draws our, 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 our attention to the heart behind the sixth commandment, to what is the underlying root cause, what is the heart issue that humans struggle with, what's going on with this sinful, dark heart that I need to make a rule that says don't murder. Jesus is getting beyond just the don't murder to help us to see what's the mess in here that needs to be addressed. The righteousness, ready for this? The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was, did I murder? No. Check. I'm good. I I obeyed the sixth commandment. And then Jesus comes along and raises the bar and shows us God's heart behind the sixth commandment. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was to avoid murdering anybody. And okay, good. Kingdom people followers of God who want to live in Jesus' kingdom, who want to live out the ways of Jesus. Kingdom people treat others around them with dignity, with worth, because they're created in God's image. We protect and care for people, not harm people. So our passage then addresses kind of three areas all related, all overlapping, and talks about three consequences, all relating, all overlapping, all the consequences kind of applying to all three. Making a significant statement about the significance of all three of these failures to live as kingdom people. The passage addresses anger and contempt and defamation, and and the passage calls for punishment in all those cases. So number one is anger. On the screen will be a quote from Dallas Willard. I was watching a lecture by Dallas Willard, a theologian teacher this week, and um, here's a quote from Dallas Willard. Anger is an expression of your will 
being crossed. I mean, get a picture of that, right? Your will, your desire, your preference, where I want to go, I'm going that way, and it's getting crossed. It's getting cut off. It's getting disagreed with. It's getting pushed back. Dallas Willard says, anger is an expression of your will being crossed. That anger is an impulse to harm or see harm done. When I'm angry at you, I just might hurt you. That's what's behind our anger, is our will being crossed. And when our will is crossed, we don't get our way, things are going against us, then we look to harm. Anyone ever angry? I didn't mean to make you raise your hand. I meant I was raising my hand. Anyone ever angry? We're attempting. We may not be attempting to take physical life in our anger, but we're attempting to take value, identity, uh, meaning away from someone who bears the image of God. The second phrase in there, in our passage, talks about insults. And some of your translations actually even say the word raka, which is in the original language that our Bibles were translated from the original language of Greek and Aramaic into English. Some of your translations in, in that part where it says that, that we are not to insult, some of our translations say the, word, the Greek word raka. This is an insult. This is name-calling. There's, there's somebody that suggested it's a, it's a, you, we could loosely translate it you know, to numbskull. But, but let me just, you know, I, that's, that's my reaction to that word is I chuckle. I think, yeah, that's something that goofing around with a buddy, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you numbskull. <laughs> that's not what this passage is talking about. Raka. Raka is an insult, a name calling. It literally means empty headed. So yeah, it might mean numbskull, but it means you mean it. You have no sense. You're empty-headed. You're worthless. You're stupid. Raka. And interestingly, some uh, scholars even think the word raka came from the sound made raka when clearing your throat to spit. Raka. Because spitting is a sign of contempt. And so if I'm going to point and name call and insult, it's raka, clearing my throat to spit on you out of contempt because you're lesser than me. What's your version of raka? What's my version of saying out loud or under my breath? Or in my head. To who? What's your version of raka? We're attacking the value, the worth, the life of a name of an image bearer of God. 
And then the other phrase in our passage this morning is, you fool. Whoever says, you fool. And the word there in the Greek is moros, from which we derive the English word moron, or you're moronic. And so, again, sometimes we think too lightly of, of an insult, numbskull. And like that, like that same way here, we sometimes think too likely, lightly of moron or, or these kind of, or a fool. And in, in the biblical terminology, fool was much more than just a foolish person. It's, a, it's an indictment against someone's moral and spiritual condition. It's saying, you're an idiot. You don't know God. You're against God. You're depraved morally. There's a lot underneath there than just, <laughs> you fool. It's a contempt. It's contempt for a person's heart, for their character, and for their spiritual condition. How is my heart when I'm angry? What's going on in here? when we insult, or name-call, or defame. We are wrongly slandering, abusing, with our defamatory statements against an image-bearer of God. So, that's a little tough to hear, and a little challenging, and we want to ask God to help us to reflect and examine and submit ourselves to God and seek forgiveness for sin where necessary. And we need to take that harder look, and we need to hear God's heart for the sixth commandment, because our temptation would be to think, I haven't shed any blood, so I'm okay. We, we need to submit ourselves to learn God's heart for his commands. We need to submit ourselves to find out what he wants to do with our hearts because it'd be tempting to read through this passage to quickly scan over you shall not murder and just go, well, I haven't shed any blood, so I must be okay. But I think, I, I, I think we know that we, are all, we have all murdered in mind and heart. And this passage tells us that Jesus says we're guilty enough to be punished. But in verse 20, Jesus said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, these rule followers, these that appeared very holy and religious and, and right. Jesus says in verse 20 that your, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so we ask ourselves the question, how? How, based on what we just had to mess based on what you and I just had to endure in the last five or ten minutes, Examining ourselves against anger and insult and defamatory statements. How am I supposed to, how is my righteousness ever going to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes? What did we say last Sunday? 
It's not. Not on your own. Not on your own efforts. Not on trying harder to be a better person. Not on a religious checklist hoping that you make enough points to have God like you more. Your, your righteousness will only exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes when you are in Christ. When you have been saved from sin and death and are being made new from the inside out because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That is when your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. I was uh, in my devotional reading this week, um, a devotional by Paul Tripp. He, he was suggesting, he was getting me thinking about this. He was saying, our hope, we, sometimes we look to the scriptures and we, we hear God's promises and we look to those promises for hope because when we self-examine, it doesn't look very good. And so we look to God's promises for hope, and, and we can and we should, but Paul, Paul Tripp was suggesting more. He was saying, what about Jesus? Let's look to Jesus. Let's, let's, look, let's have our hope in Jesus. And, and it's true. Our hope needs to be in Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God who lived and died and rose again so that we too might live. But this is what was really interesting to me. Paul Tripp says, really, the message of the Bible is even more than that. It's more than hope in Jesus. Hope is Jesus. He suggested that hope is a person and his name is Jesus. That's where our hope comes from, for living in a righteous way, for living out the ways of Jesus, for finding freedom from sin and death and forgiveness from sin. The message of the Bible is more than hope in Jesus. Hope is Jesus. The gospel is the spectacular news that God rescues sinners like you and I through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The, the good news of the gospel is that not by our own efforts, but by putting our trust in Jesus, God forgives, God rescues, saves, and tr- begins to transform you into the person he's made you to be. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. So, how... As we are saved, if you have put your trust in Christ, you have received forgiveness of sin, you have received salvation, you have received God's Spirit living within you and helping you to live for Him now. So if we as followers of Jesus are being transformed, and if our desire is to live a kingdom life, to live as citizens of the kingdom, to live out the ways of Jesus, what are some ways that's going to happen? What are some things that God wants to do in and through you and I How does he want us to apply the glorious reality? If we're going to set aside kingdom of self and live in the kingdom of God, in the reality that Jesus is king and he is at work now and will be forever, if we as followers of Jesus want to live kingdom lives, what what does that look like? What are some things we can apply today? And so look with me on the screen at Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
be put away from you. Let those things be put away from you. I read an article this week. Tim Shorey, a, a pastor, author, writes this. According to Jesus, the hard truth is that insulting someone by calling them stupid, fool, raka, worthless. According to Jesus, the hard truth is that insulting someone by calling them stupid is murderous profanity. A hell-deserving disregard for the dignity of others. So listen to this part. Profanity, then, is not about the number of letters in a word. It's about the way we treat, talk about, or fail to respect or enjoy people that God created in his image. I ask at the beginning, do you use profanity? And our minds go to certain words that we've been taught to avoid. And the heart of God for the transformation of our heart is, is goes beyond the number of letters in the word to our heart toward people and our interaction with people and our treatment of people and our recognition of their value and worth because of their being made in the image of God. And anything short of that is murderous profanity, a hell-deserving disregard for the dignity of others. So God's word tells us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Look at, that, look at those in that first line or two, what we put away. And then look what, by the grace of God, with the help of the Spirit working in our lives, we put on, so to speak. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God, in Christ, forgave you. Now let's take a look at James 1, 19 and 20 on the screen. Know this, my beloved brothers. We studied this not long ago. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we are confronted with our tendency toward anger when we're asked to reflect on times that we raka others, when we're asked to consider where our statements fall short of the dignity that other people deserve, one of our common defense mechanisms when, this when we're confronted with this topic is to go, well, wasn't Jesus angry sometimes? Anyone ever, anyone already had that thought this morning? Maybe? Our, our tendency, our, one of our defense mechanisms might be to say, wasn't Jesus angry on occasion? Yes. Yes, you're right. But let's check ourselves before we use Jesus to excuse our own behavior. Because last time I checked, I'm not the son of God the only one that, whoever, that, that ever perfectly fulfilled the law. We say, Didn't, wasn't Jesus angry? Hoping that that justifies ourselves. But our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not, not as Jesus did. 
Jesus burned with indignation and anger when there was injustice, when there was sin. Is that really when we burn with indignation and anger? Or, or, do, or am I more likely to burn with indignation and anger when I've been offended? When my ego is at stake? When what I really want to do is strike back? Where is my anger coming from? And, and do we really get to compare that to Jesus' righteous indignation and anger against sin and injustice. Here's an example. Think with me on this. We encounter situations in our life all the time. We encounter to- hot topics, difficult topics that people have multiple opinions on. We encounter them in real life conversations and we encounter them online. We come to a situation with people involved that God has made in His image that have come to some different conclusions than us. We come to these situations, these circumstances, these conversations, and listen with me now. Put, ourselves in these, put yourself in these shoes. We get to this situation in this, with these people, and we may have, we may correctly discern in that situation what is right. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. You might, I might, in a certain situation with people, correctly discern what is right. Okay, now what do we do with that? Now, in, 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 in talking, in, in explaining, in our desire to have someone else see what we have correctly discerned to be right, as we push for what is right, if our ego, if the image of Derek gets wrapped up in my pushing toward what is right, what I may have correctly discerned as right, But if my ego gets wrapped up in my pushing for what is right, in in what's supposed to be a discussion, here's what begins to happen in you. Maybe you relate to this. If we include our ego in our discussion, we begin to think that not only is is the person we're talking to wrong, but we actually allow ourselves to spiral down into perceiving that they're against us or that they're attacking us. Now, What? But because my ego has gotten involved, and it's not about just what's right or wrong, and it's not just about conversation and how to treat people right, I include my ego in my push toward what is right, and what inadvertently happens is now I'm looking at them going, they are wrong, and they are against me, and they're attacking me. And so, when I'm being attacked, how do I respond? The flesh starts to bubble up, I'm angry, I'm going to strike back. Now, I might justify my striking back. I might justify my anger in that conversation because I I might think to myself in my broken, sinful human nature, I might justify it thinking, yeah, but I'm standing up for what's right. No, I'm not. I'm defending myself. I got my feelings hurt. I thought they were against me as a human being, and so I'm striking back. It's gone beyond a discussion between image bearers of God to attack and anger and retaliation. Retaliation? That's coming later in the Sermon on the Mount. I guess I better move on. Instead of reacting like that, what if we get in situations with people 
a hot topic, a difficult discussion. And instead of taking it personally and retaliating in anger, I got an idea. What if we look to the example of Jesus on the screen in 1 Peter chapter 2? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Instead of having to have his ego wrapped up in it and fighting for himself and clearing his name and needing to be heard and needing to be understood, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the only one who judges justly, the only one whose opinion matters, the only one whose judgment matters, the only one that knows his heart and will do what's needed. So the passage then shifts from things that we are to avoid as kingdom people. If we live out a kingdom life, living out the ways of Jesus, we will avoid anger, contempt, defamation. And now we have a couple positive examples in the, in the passage that I'm going to cover very quickly. So instead of anger, instead of responding by retaliating, instead of uh, acting, attacking back and, and going against an image bearer, we now have in the scripture passage here, we have two examples of the significance, the importance of reconciliation, of maintaining relationships, of building relationships. Instead of attacking life, taking away life, he gives two examples of how we are to reconcile. Verse 23. So if you are offering a gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. Be reconciled first to this person that you have difficulty with, that there's a disagreement with, between there's a broken relationship with, and then come and offer your gift. This is an incredible statement. You would think that one of his main emphasis would be worship and how you worship God and what you should do to proclaim your love for God. And, and, and yet Jesus is saying, here's how important it is that you reconcile relationships in your life, that your worship, if you come to worship, to give a gift, to lift your voice in song, to say a prayer, if you gather together with God's people, it's, your worship is insincere. Your worship is false if you have not first efforted to reconcile. That our relationships, maintaining, building, reconciling relationships are, are more important than our religious duties. And then the second example, number, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. This is, I love this about this passage. Um, Where it says at the beginning of verse 25, come to terms quickly, when you dig into the original language there, uh, it's a unique phrasing and I'm not even totally sure I get it, but there's this sense in the original language of wishing the person well, being peaceable toward them, it's translated here, come to terms quickly, but it's, there's a sense of well-wishing, of, of being peaceable toward them. One translation, I believe one English translation even says, make friends quickly. Now think about that. Someone's taking you to court. Someone's accusing you. And you're going along and you're headed to the judge. 
And the scripture that Jesus said, or what Jesus says in the scripture is, better make friends quickly as you go, as you're walking toward the judge. There's a sense of be peaceable with, wish well upon this person that's accusing you. Make friends quickly because the sense is that if, we're, that if our desire is reconciliation, if our desire is friendship, if our desire is to make a relationship whole, guess what the assumption is? The assumption is that, that whatever that dispute is will probably get settled more easily. Wouldn't it? If there's not that antagonism, if there's not the, the, uh, the lack of reconciliation, if we're making friends quickly, if we're peaceable toward as we go, if we're settling things quickly, then, then the dispute comes to a quick end. There's an urgency to maintaining relationships. There's an urgency to reconciliation. Before I close, I'm going to mention two resources. This brochure, this little handout called Pursuing Peace Together is something that's familiar to many of you and unfamiliar to many of you. That's fine. There are these little handouts are available in the lobby on the literature rack on the little stand that has different things in it. If this is of interest to you, it's called Pursuing Peace Together. And in just a few little short pages, there's some significant principles and thought-provoking ideas for if you're struggling with broken relationships in your life, unrecon- uh, lack of reconciliation in your spheres of influence, in your family, in your extended family, in friendships, in the community, these are excellent reminders. Um, if you haven't seen it, take a look. If you want one, take it home. If, you, if you're up for more and you need more help in this area, here's a book called Peacemaker. There's a copy on the table in the back of the worship center that you can borrow if you'd like, or you can just look at it back there so you know what's in it. If you want to order one, you can. Here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out when you come to resource God biblical resources for peacemaking, you're going to find out it doesn't tell you how to nail the other side. I wish it did. Sometimes. You know what it's going to have you do? It's going to have you turn inward to do that heart, look at that heart mess we've been talking about. What these resources based on God's word are going to do is ask you to consider the gigantic piece of lumber in your own eye, as God's word says, something like that, before we pick at the little sawdust in someone else's eye. So if you don't take either of these resources, just go read that scripture verse over and over to yourself related to unreconciled relationships. What's going on here first? What log do I have in my own eye that I need to do work with God so that I can go and be reconciled? Church family, hope is a person and his name is Jesus. These, typical, these, these topics are difficult because we feel heavy. We feel our sin nature confronted. We see, we feel perhaps too seen by God right now. But it's a good place to be. It's a good place to be knowing how messy this is. And hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. The kingdom of self is going to continue to spin off into profanity and murderous 
behavior and life-taking and offending and unreconciled relationships. And the kingdom, life in God's kingdom, submitted to Jesus as king, submitted and living as citizens of his kingdom, is going to lead toward building others up and giving life, not taking life, and maintaining relationships instead of breaking relationships, and finding reconciliation instead of leaving things unreconciled. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us, even in the mess of our hearts. Father God, thank you for your great love for us, even when we look at the log in our own eye, even when we have to submit ourselves to your correction. Thank you that you love Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Father, that, that you demonstrate your great love for us in this, that while we were stuck in sin, Jesus died so that we might live. Reminded of that glorious gospel good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, because of that, Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the pinnacle moment of history where you made us right with, with God, where you forgave sin, where you brought us into new life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that brings us not only new life eternal, but life now and life being transformed and being made new into the image of God. Father God, as we live as citizens of the kingdom, I pray that you would give us a growing sense of your majesty, that we would be so taken, so in awe, of your majesty, of your justice, of your goodness. God, would you give us such a tremendous respect and understanding for the fact that you have created all things, including all people, and that you have put the image of God in all people. God, would our sense of your greatness and would our, would our sense of your image in, in people impact how we talk to and about you and how we talk to and about others? Would you help us to honor you by honoring the image of God in other people. God, may we be preservers of life, not takers. Would we be those who build up, not tear down? And would we be those who find reconciliation with God and with others? We love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.